All right, and we're back with another episode with the George Kennan Group as part of the Geopolitical Podcast. It's your host, Samaj Badal, and we are here with, like, a lot of people, and I don't know how I feel about that. Um, unfortunately, Brian is still here. So <laughs> Every time. Does this have to happen? Well, we got to introduce a new guy. Yeah, we got another Brian. It's not his replacement, but um, he has credentials. Um, we met... Wainwright last time. Wainwright, say hello. How you doing? What's good? <laughs> no, but you know, they don't want to hear from me. They don't want to hear from Brian Jones. They want to hear Brian me. Jones is in the building today. Um, so, Brian, uh, you know, here it's part of our culture that you introduce yourself and you talk a little bit about yourself. So, um, have at it, Mr. Jones. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm really happy to be here. You know, first podcast. So, it's I'm really, really excited to, you know, be on the air. As, as you said, my name is Brian Jones. I am a friend of Clark's. Uh, we do the Army ROTC program at Georgetown together. You know, I've got to preface, of course, anything I say, my own opinion, not the DOD, not the Army, nothing like that. Um, I currently do, I've been track. I've been looking at a lot of the armed forces across the world, particularly Russia and China over the past several years. I'm currently part of the Global Threat Brief for the Army ROTC program here at Georgetown, where I essentially take the week's news and examine them, particularly the last month or so I've been focused on the Ukraine build-up and invasion. It's been quite the busy week, as I'm sure we'll get into it. Absolutely. Yeah, more credentials than I do. Jeez. Um... With that being said, Aubrey, uh, Aubrey's here. Yes. So, Aubrey Hodge has really Aubrey returned. has finally returned. emerged. Yes, from wherever he came from. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Aubrey, how are you doing? I'm well, Samaj. How are you? Highly blessed and favored. Yeah. Um. So, with that being said, we had the gang here. Robert, you're here. Zdravstvoi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I forgot how to say how are you in Russian. Kaktiwa. Oh, you got a show. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you. It is the Baruski podcast. For like the past three days, it has been. But anyway, uh, we're going to get uh, straight into what we're here to pretty much discuss. It's kind of the continuation of uh, what's currently going on with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, but also... Uh, for the latter half, we want to talk a little bit about kind of the geopolitical consequences and implications of this, as well as um, a few other places in which there are um, some simmering, subtle, unsubtle um, hotspots that should be talked about as well, um, such as Venezuela, um, as well as what's going on in Libya. With that being said, uh, let's kind of pivot, no pun intended, to... Um, the, the summary of the ground engagements yes. that I've been working out. Yeah, I'm, so what I'm going to do, I'm just going to go over the the four primary axes that are the Russians are advancing on in Ukraine. Jones is going to help me out with that. And then I want to get Aubrey Hodge's kind of idea of what he thinks of, of what has gone on so far. Um, so the four axes that I can see the Russians are advancing on is from the north, the northeast, the east, and the south. And from the north, they've, the Russians have made quite a bit of gains. They're at Kiev right now. They're on the outskirts of Kiev um, along the, the west bank of that river. What is the river called? Dnieper. Yeah, Dnieper. Yeah, there we go. Um, and so far, they've failed to enter uh, Kiev's eastern outskirts, and that may change. We'll just have to see how that, um, the next 24 hours, see how that goes on. 
from the northeast, um, the Russians have also advanced to the outskirts of Kharkiv, which is like the second largest city metropolitan area in Ukraine. Um, so if, if the Russians take either one of those, uh, the Ukrainians are going to be in big trouble, at least in my assessment. Yes, so definitely the plan was pretty clear from the get-go, just looking even before the invasion started, just the sheer number of materials that they were setting up and where they were. It was clear this was a four- to three-pronged attack. A lot of times Kharkiv and, and Donbass, they get mixed together as one axis. However, the plan was for Putin was to use the overwhelming firepower to crush the less well-equipped and less numerous Ukrainian populace swoop in, get the war done as quickly as possible. That plan has by no means actually happened. It's gone quite poorly for the Russian offensive. They've been hamstrung by dozens of logistical issues that range everywhere from poor planning to corruption to just plain problems. And in the resistance from the Ukrainians is absolutely incredible. Uh, the sheer the sheer grit that they have cannot be overstated. And, and you can see it in the other two axes, the other two that we haven't talked about, the Donbass axis, where the Russians have been basically completely stopped, and then along the Crimean axis to the south. They made some gains, but not nearly as much as they wanted to. Um, they, have not, they are not even anywhere close to splitting Ukraine in two, which is what I think wanted to happen. But now that we've gone through those four axes, I want to get Aubrey Hodges kind of opinion of what's been going on because we haven't heard from you in over you know it's been about a month now so i thought he ran away i came here <laughs> I so I hear this. i'm afraid of speaking you already know how i am yes <laughs> yes but floor is yours so we recently heard from the russian federation uh ministry of defense that uh mr putin has given the order to resume the offensive in ukraine he's, he's obviously failed to take kiev in the time that uh he expected and so this is probably just confirmed that it's all of Ukraine now and or nothing. Uh, it's not just the security of Donetsk and Luhansk. It's not this denazification of Ukraine like we've all been told. It seems now that we have it on record. It's going to be the subjugation of the entire country. I think that there was a good possibility of Zelensky and his cabinet uh, sensing that they would be killed or disappeared if they were to have these negotiations with Putin in Belarus and the Ukrainians suggesting or proposing that they would rather talk in Poland than that is indicative of that. Uh, so the Russians saying that this is them abandoning the negotiation process and uh, declaring their lift of the halt of the offensive is uh, just going to continue on and this is why they've also given this order. So from the perspective of people actually on the ground in there, it's, it's no, it was never a fight for the saving of the Donbass region. And I think everybody in Ukraine realized that it was pretty much just going to be a full invasion. Now, I wish Mr. Putin the best of luck if he, honest to God, thinks he's going to take Western Ukraine without probably one of the bloodiest fights he's ever had. Because those people are insane. That's where Ukrainian <laughs> partisanship started. And so... I've heard recently that Belarus is actually going to join into the fight, but one factor that's not really taken into account is the Ukrainians are fighting a defensive war for their home and their own sovereignty, which is our two pretty big motivators, mm -hmm. and that the Russian troops that are coming in are actually getting very, very demoralized and realizing that they don't even want to do this. And there is alleged reports now that uh, 
one of the Chechen generals that was in charge of the Chechen military force was actually killed in action outside of Kiev today. So, so Brian Revis just returned with Dan Clegg in tow, and, and you guys don't know what we're talking about. We're talking about uh, the, the Russian advances into Ukraine, or for the better term, the lack of advance. And yeah, I, I just yeah. wanted to get your opinion, Dan, first on it, and then I want to get yours. Of course. Well, Brian. Um, the Russian army, of course, is a lot different than uh, the military in the West and what we're used to in terms of uh, you know having largely a professional force. Uh, the Russian military is, of course, an officer's force. Primarily, they're leading from behind. And many of the forces in front, while individual soldiers are sort of expected to take initiative, um, they are generally, if they are losing their officers, they you know don't really have a lot to work with. Um, in addition to that, Russia is known for putting their conscripts on the first line of defense. So many of the young men who have been uh, out at the very forefront of the fighting, many of those who have been surrendering or even just abandoning their uniforms and getting out of Dodge, are those conscripts who did not even realize they were going to a war. Uh, they also only represent right now roughly one-third of Russian's forces that have deployed. So uh, the Ukrainians are giving them hell, and they are doing a spectacular job, and I'm looking forward to seeing them continue to do that. However, I think that it's worth bearing in mind for everyone that Ukraine does need help from the outside still, because the very worst of what is to come is still to come. The Russians have not deployed their most technologically advanced or well-trained forces. They have not de deployed their most advanced weapon systems, and they have not even begun to deploy some of the more seriously heavy artillery that they have for contingency plans. And I think that given how badly this is going for them on the world stage compared to, say, Ukraine or Georgia, where they knew more or less they, sorry, Chechnya or Georgia, where they knew more or less they'd be able to get away with it, uh, this is a case where they have already burned their bridges, what's not a little bit more fire? No, that's very true, and I just want to add a little bit of context to what you just said about not deploying their expert units. The Russian 76th Airborne Division is currently stationed in Belarus, and it's about to deploy. So we're going to see a little bit that upping of expertise. But you're right, yeah, no, I mean, the Russian military, it doesn't have many NCOs, or not many experienced good ones, not like the United States does. So, so probably a lot more of their leadership and experience military capability actually comes from Russia's private military contractors rather than the conscripted military forces. I would not be surprised to see a significant amount of those PMCs beginning to uh, take the lead when it comes to uh, attempting to subjugate and uh, commit mass killings within Ukraine. Uh, we already know that the Chechen uh, groups that have been deployed in there were almost purpose sent to conduct mass killing. Um, and uh, a lot of people are very concerned about what's going to happen once they start. Brian, what do you think about that? Um, or just anything about Ukraine in particular, this whole scenario. Well, first off, for the Chechens, like honestly, for especially for Russians and especially for anyone in Eastern Europe, they're usually known as the killers. Like you can think about the events that happened in East, in Chechnya during the late in the mid 1990s, even the late 1990s. They are no. They're usually thought of honestly closer to closer to barbarians in a sense, and I think that is, and in some cases. There's still some fear of that right now, and I think there's a lot of people that are afraid of that. As for the situation in Ukraine, it's interesting because we have seen so far, like we, with all the events that are going on, people have been expecting, oh, Russia's going to take over the country within a couple of days. But what we're actually seeing is things that people actually forgot is the fact that Russia has general components of the military, and one of the biggest things, which we talked about in the last podcast, was it's supply chains. It is, Russia has never been good at keeping supply lines, logistics, etc. And we are seeing that happen right now because we are hearing in the streets that literally Russian soldiers are asking for gas for their 
for their tanks and even asking for food from Ukrainian towns. As well as we, the Russians, I'm pretty sure they weren't expecting the Ukrainians to fight like so hard and so bitterly with huge resistance. I feel like they thought that this was going to be like the Georgia War in 2008, where the strategy of the Georgians was to fall back to Tbilisi, the capital, and let the Russians take over the rest of the country. And we're not seeing that with Ukraine. So far, the Russians just own the borderlands of Ukraine, Ukraine, and most of the country still is under Ukrainian control, which is something that is very interesting. I think most of us did not expect this to happen whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Dan, what do you got? Yeah, I mean, just sort of building off of that, um, you know, you do make a good point in terms of, or you make several good points, but in particular, when you talk about the supply chain issue, um, the Russians do struggle a lot with their supply chains, as you mentioned. Uh, they do not struggle, typically, with a blitz. And I think the problem here is that they expected to send in their conscripts and they expected for, and their, you know, less experienced troops, and from what I understand, the follow-up uh, waves that have already gone in were many of their sober and Oman uh, police uh, units, many of whom are trained for close quarters urban combat, but are not trained for fighting large-scale firefights against enemy armor and uh, large uh, caliber and capacity weapons. Um, so they are, they're not prepared for this fight. They were expecting to come in and occupy. Um, and right now, since that blitz has not succeeded, Russia is now looking at its other options to do wholesale destruction to the people and infrastructure of Ukraine. No, that's, that's very well put, Dan. And I know Robbie, Aubrey, and Brian Jones, you each have your own perspective on Russia's sustainment problems. And i kind of like you guys to, to each talk about that. Robbie, or, yeah, let's, let's go Robbie first. Why not? I, I pulled your name out of the hat. What do you okay. think? So with, when it comes to Russia, they have several different areas that they're struggling with. First off is logistics, especially now that it's being reported that the Ukrainians have destroyed the rail stations or rail lines between the Russian Federation and Ukraine, which means they can't really pull supplies and logistics in. But Russia also does have a problem on the home front as well, because more and more this war is getting less and less loved in Russia as it was anyways. And just this morning, apparently Anonymous hacked the Russian television system and decided to play Ukrainian music and Ukrainian national anthems all on the Russian uh, information system. It's getting more and more reports that uh, both Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those are getting removed from Russia. But there's even now a new pop-up protest in Moscow, of all places, of how basically the Russians don't want this. Because from a cultural sense, if you look at it from the United States, It would be like if two states went to war. There's a lot of intermixing between the Russians and the Ukrainians. They're both independent identities, but there's a lot of intermixing. A lot of these people have family that live in Ukraine and vice versa. So this war wasn't popular necessarily to begin with. So it's just kind of interesting how long can Putin last versus may Russian Federation actually take over. Well spotted. Aubrey, what do you think? And it's that, that occupation aspect that the Russians are, are expecting. And they're losing the, the perception of the Ukrainians who they expected to welcome them with open arms, as well as the, in the international arena. We've seen several videos, especially online, of Russians uh, committing uh, just awful humanitarian violations within the battle face. And we've also seen uh, them try to use different sets of active measures to try to warp the perception of Ukrainians to think that uh, that the Ukrainian military is going after them. No, well, Brian Jones. Point. Yep. All right. Let's see. Uh, going back <laughs> to the initial question of the supply chains. I mean, obviously, the, we need to take the economic situation in Russia into account. I mean, even before this war started, they were seriously struggling for cash, and it's only getting worse for them. 
and as they're you know deploying a lot of their tanks like the T-80s and things like that, which are essentially a midline. They're not their worst tanks, but they're not quite their best either. And they are getting shredded by Ukrainian anti-tank weapons. Uh, several helicopters and even transporters are going down. They're losing a lot of money, not to mention, you know, fuel, weapons, and particularly ammunition as, the, as their heavy artillery and even other lighter artillery are getting brought into the fight. They're, that that costs a lot of money to keep up, and they're having problems with it. Moreover, corruption is a huge issue in the Russian army. And they were in Belarus. There were reports that they were bartering their guns and their body armor for moonshine and other comforts. So. Well, what's a Russian without a drink? Let's be, Let's be honest. That's true. No, I mean, sustainment's more than just logistics. It includes the financial side of things, the personnel side. Um, it includes all that. Um, Brian, what do you have to say about all this? Well, it's funny because you can, like, with Russian tanks being destroyed by by javelins as well as uh, Russian aircraft being destroyed by Stinger missiles supplied by UK, US, and whoever else has been supporting, it's funny because it wasn't that long ago, back in the 1980s, when the Soviets were in Afghanistan, they were they obviously they were winning the they were kind of winning the war in the beginning and then when the U.S. starts sending miss sending Stinger missiles to go after the Russian Hinds, uh, the Hind helicopters, that was when the war turned because the Russians lost one of their biggest capabilities for air power and superiority, and that and think about it for a Stinger missile that's about ten thousand dollars right there a mi a. MI-24 or MI-36, I'm trying to forget to remember the numbers, for basically for a Hind helicopter, that's about like two to three, maybe even $10 million. So they were, like um, Brian just said, it's huge economic losses for that. Um, so two points sort of building off of that. Um, obviously, they are suffering immense losses financially from the uh, destruction of many of the mainline forces. However, um, I've seen some analysis about this that has indicated that given they're not putting their best foot forward, so to speak, in terms of their personnel, military capabilities, um, there are some, some suggestions that the Russians may have been aware that the, that the uh, Ukrainians had access to many of these weapon systems and are looking to, uh, for lack of a better word, exa exhaust the Ukrainian ammunition supply of these weapon systems before they send in their more advanced, more high-tech capabilities. Um, on top of that, I've actually seen something coming out of a pro-Russian telegram channel um, where they were discussing some real concerns that were coming from the Russian side of things about this conflict. Namely, why are the formations of the armed forces of Ukraine uh, not destroyed in their places of deployment, and how did they reach the front lines? Why are the troops moving forward without waiting for suppression of pockets of resistance by aircraft, UAVs, and missiles? Why is the electronic warfare not working in the headquarters of the armed forces of Ukraine have not been destroyed? And why are there, is the Russian uh, military intelligence not doing more to support on the information warfare front. The biggest loss that a lot of Russian sides are discussing is in the information warfare front because the entire world was turned against them and they were not expecting that. So, I mean, there was a lot there to unpack. Um, Samaj, you got anything you want to add? Any, any opinion about how the Russians have been doing, how they can improve, how the Ukrainians can defend themselves more effectively? Sure. Um... I caught him on the spot there. Now, now, <laughs> yeah. now he's trying to gather himself. So. I am. I wasn't. You, you got me there, Wayne White. Um, off the dome. Let's do this. So I think for the Russian Federation, one thing that they did not take into account, or they did take into account, but they kind of minimized its priority, is indeed the will of fight by the, uh, for the uh, Ukrainian people. 
Um, this has been a massive buildup over the past three, two, three months, give or take. Yeah. Um, at least December. Right. And, and that, in that sense, it's kind of, you provided the Ukrainian people their own sense of Casa's belly, where they saw you coming, um, and you stood there and you allowed them to see you. Um, that can do a, a, a number of things. Uh, it could have been the attention that Putin would would have preferred to have scared Kiev into submission before actual invasion, um, or it was a sense of this is what's coming. Um, bend a knee and you'll be quote unquote safe. What the Russian Federation should have done better, um, well, one, not invade at all. But two, <laughs> but two, uh, their main problem is that we talked as we talked about the logistics and communications, but also for the simple fact that um, looking at traditional Russian military operations is similar to that of like the Mongols, where they send in hordes. So this could be, and as, as I evaluated, um, this could be, you know, you send your conscripts, you send your poli- your you know police forces or whatever the case may be, in first to essentially have the Ukrainians or your adversary give their all first. Weaken them. Yeah, you're going to lose people, but when has Russia ever cared about that? Um, once that, once they say, let's say they survived the first wave or the second wave, by the third or fourth wave, they're tired. They don't want to fight anymore. You used all your ammunition for the first three waves. Then Russia will come in with their more advanced weapon systems, with their with more of their equipments, with their actual trained men. So then that point, the actual occupation, will there still be some resistance, but it won't be at the same level of morale as the first and second wave. So I think that's the strategy they're going for. Um, and hopefully um, the Ukrainian people will be able to keep their morale up. It's just this is literally going to come down to being a battle of attrition. Who is willing to take as much bloodshed as possible, whether it's the Ukrainian spirit or the Russian people saying enough is enough. We understand our lives are on the line for protesting as well against Vladimir Putin, but we've been complicit with his rule since 1999. That's what it's going to come down to um, from my strategic overview. Yeah, I mean, the the Russian forces, they've underperformed, but they're still making progress into Ukraine. No one can dispute that. Uh, And that brings up the question, though, do you guys think Russia has lost the war already? Or are they are they going to win in the end on the ground and they're going to lose in the diplomatic side of things and the economic side of things? Uh, Brian, do you have anything in particular you want to talk about regarding that? Well, involving how Russia's gains, obviously we haven't seen that many gains since the conflict started, but honestly, I think it's still very uncertain to tell what's going on. Obviously, the Ukrainian side is doing a lot better than what most people mm-hmm. expected. And it's a, in some ways, it, that is a good thing, honestly. I'm just going to say it now. It's a good thing. But like we still don't know, honestly, because po- there is still a possibility that Russians have something in their hand. And the thing I'm curious about is as they're trying to push into Kiev and they're starting to fire rockets in there, mm-hmm. um, the one thing I'm curious about is as they're firing unguided rockets, at what they hit. Because um, from remembering past wars, such as the Georgia War, I remember the Russians had a... Um, had a policy, the only, one of the few policies they had was to not hit churches in Georgia because they had such a historical and religious significance, even for Russia. And that would have helped to create 
to demoralize the population in Russia against the war. And as multiple rockets are just hitting random locations of Kiev, I'm wondering with Kiev, who has massive cathedrals and churches to Eastern Orthodoxy, which is the shared religion between two countries, if one of those rockets hits any of those churches, how would that affect the war F, the war morale in Russia, which is already going down by the second? So that is one of my curiosities for what's going to happen in the future. So when it when it comes to the whole, has Russia lost already? I think Russia already has lost because even if they take the even if they manage to take all of Ukraine, the whole thing, there will still be a strong resistance that will be aided by the West. And that's right on NATO's border. It's not like having to send guys in the South Vietnam to shake things up in North Vietnam. I mean, this is... It's their backyard. Yeah, this yeah. is Europe's backyard. Or in their case, they're Kansas. So, <laughs> I, I'm honest. So, so I, it, the Russians have already lost because their people now see at least Vladimir Putin, I think, in a much more negative light than they saw him earlier. Mm. And even if they do have a positive view of Vladimir Putin, Russia has now become so ostracized from the world because they've reneged on so many agreements, mm -hmm. and they're so untrustworthy that now even the Chinese, I think, aren't really even super, super keen on dealing with them. Because why would you want somebody that has that's not going to even follow anything they say? And so, even if Russia conquers the country, that includes having to somehow garrison that entire country. Oh, which, yeah. 62 million Ukrainians, yeah, is that about right? No, no. So Ukraine's population is about 41 million, okay, okay. but the it's... It, the whole country is larger than Texas. Right. So it's a massive country with histories of strong resistances against most of all the countries that have occupied it. So it would be really hard with the logistics nightmares, with just and troops in general, just trying to secure that area. And so it seems like Russia has lost financially. They've lost on their societal level. They've even lost somewhat religiously because I'm sure they're going to hit some churches and yeah. Russian people aren't anything if not religious. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely kind of want to go back to your point about their doctrine of essentially sending in waves after waves of conscripts just to try to wear them down and then, you know, just kind of hammer them to death eventually with some of their top line units. That That's definitely classic Soviet doctrine, mm -hmm. you know, send in, have essentially more people than the enemy does bullets. Right. However, particularly now, Russia does not have the, mm -hmm. the manpower, mm -hmm. does not have the sheer equipment, does not have any of the, the money mm -hmm. or or even the political backing by this point to actually pull that off. So they are in serious trouble if that's what they're actually going with. Yeah. Dan Clay, what you got? You got a hot take. I can see it. Yeah, so uh, we, we talked a little bit about the Afghan war. I think, you know, I, I find myself saying this a lot, obviously. Um, you know, as much as Putin is trying to act like he's trying to kick off the Cold War again, this isn't the USSR, um, and the objectives in Ukraine are very, very different from the objectives in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan... They were looking to promote an already existing communist movement to overthrow the government, and they did overthrow the government relatively quickly, but they then struggled trying to help support this communist government in fighting in the hills, um, in large part because the Russians really failed at winning over the hearts and minds of the people in Afghanistan when they started slitting the throats of their children in front of them. Um, in a, in, a, in sure. Ukraine, Russia does not have that same objective. I think, that, yeah, I think this is probably one of the first podcasts that uh, said this that I was aware of, and we said this a couple weeks ago. Russia's not looking to do an occupation. They're not looking to do a long, sustained uh, conflict here. They're looking to they're looking to throw down the government in Ukraine, prop up some kind of puppet that can just barely hold it together, and contribute to destabilizing NATO and destabilizing Europe as a whole 
via Ukraine. Um, if we want to stop them, and if we want to stop them from doing this, because they will eventually at the rate that they're going, I think that they will succeed at taking down the Ukrainian government, even if they end up crippling themselves doing it. If we want to make sure that that doesn't happen, if we want to make sure Zelensky and his government survive and Ukraine doesn't become a failed state, there's a lot of things that are going to need to happen. There's a lot of volunteer forces that are being invited to go into Ukraine right now. I think that supporting those with special operations forces in a regular warfare might be viable. Um, another sort of aspect of that, if you want to overthrow Putin within his own country, you can't do that just by rallying the people. You have to rally the middle sector, the middle of the road, the military infrastructure, the people who keep the trains running, the people who keep the lights on. Uh, the oligarchs, you know, you can help to some extent by making them distrust Putin, but he largely controls them. The ones that Putin relies on for most of his power are the sort of upper middle class intelligentsia, military intelligence, law enforcement, um, and military officer class. You get those folks uh, more pissed off at him than they are scared of him, you've got Russia. So, Aubrey, what do you think about this? Do you think Russia's lost the war, or do you think they're going to win in the end? Well, Wainwright, I, I particularly like playing devil's advocate oh. on occasion. Okay, okay. So Bring let's, it, Aubrey. So let's say that the tide does turn in Russia's favor. Let's say they get their logistics straightened out. Let's say that uh, all their tanks are on the roads, all their men, they have all their special weapons, and they're bringing them up. Well, they have the will once they beat the Ukrainian military and once they overthrow Ukraine to wage this uh, war of insurgency or this, this, this occupancy that's going to be coming up. And we've seen throughout history the Ukrainians, uh, especially during World War II, when they had the Nationalist uh, Insurgents Army going after both the Germans and the Communists, uh, so there is a long line of U Ukrainian history that sort of tells us that they will be fighting uh, inch by inch for Ukrainian ground in the end. And I think that in the long term, either way, they'll lose. Okay. okay. Yeah, no, speaking of occupying such a large amount of territory in Ukraine, as, as Robbie said, Brian Jones just found some news on his, on his feed. Yes, this yeah. just came in and... Uh... Belgorod, approximately 5,000 contracted servicemen rioted and refused to go to fight in Ukraine, according to recent reports. Oh, wow. So if this can be verified, yes, of this, this, be will, verified. this will be a massive, I think, game changer. This will be a direct assault against Putin's legitimacy by people on the ground who he depends on to take control of Ukraine. No, that's actually some very interesting news because you don't really hear that much about mutinies going on in the Russian military. Like, um, the last major one I think that really happened was 1905 with the 1905 revolution. Well, there were some in Afghanistan too, but that, again, it speaks to your point. Yeah, like, they were very rare. Like, it's very rare for the Russian military to, um, go against, to go against, like, those orders and its leadership and all of that. And I, that's actually very surprising news to hear, and that honestly just shows how soldiers feel about what's going on right now, what they're seeing, and what they're about to be thrown into, honestly. even if, Especially if those soldiers know people in Ukraine. Obviously, they might have long friends. They may have distant relatives, etc. And that's going to affect them and on what they what they want to do and everything. Yeah, if I could just add to that, like, I, I know from a, from a slightly personal aspect, like, me personally, my mother's side of the family are Ukrainian Jews who are also Polish, and my father's side are Ukrainian and Russian. And so... I can see, if that's actually true, I can understand why, because, I mean, there's so much intermixing there that, I mean, those people, Russians don't see Ukrainians as 
their enemies. It's not like they're going to go fight in Afghanistan and because there's no culture shared. You know, they saw the Afghanis as their own enemies. This is a shared culture and a shared place. Like my own sister, she, my, I was talking to my parents, my own sister, who doesn't keep up with the news at all, she has no real care for politics, she, she actually asked, and she's adopted from Russia, and she asked my parents, and she said, why are my people fighting in Ukraine? And that, to me, really hit, because it's like, if she can understand that, I'm sure people in Russia are really starting to get that as well. Yeah, so obviously we'll keep tracking that and see if that actually pans out. And, of course, you know, information's hard to come by, but that's big news, particularly if that's true. And, frankly, it makes a lot of sense to, to points that we made previously. If they're sending waves after waves of conscripts just to be missile fodder, people are really not going to like that. Uh, I mean, I know I wouldn't. If I was sent, you know, with a Soviet, essentially, tinderbox, into into the front lines just to eat a missile and burn to death. Mm -hmm. I would really not be happy about. That. I, I would really not want to fight there. And mm -hmm. I would. And I definitely think this is kind of backfiring on politi Putin's political legitimacy. Yep. I was not expecting it to be this soon, but definitely the, between public opinion, the military. You know, when people start getting news of their sons dying and mm -hmm. you know being left in fields for days. Stuff becomes real. Stuff becomes real. People will people will look at Putin and go, "Why on earth are you doing this?" I think also what goes with that. I don't think Putin imagined the sheer amount of media publicity um, that would have exposed his military's behaviors in Ukraine to be so effective. When we saw the first two days of this invasion. I mean, you've seen Russian fighter jets shoot missiles at apartment buildings. You've seen missiles striking airports and um, naval ships launching cruise missiles. And see, as yesterday there was a video of a Russian of a Russian tank um, literally deliberately driving over a Ukrainian civilian car. That was sad. For no reason. By the way, the man did survive. That, oh, that is confirmed. The old cool. man in the that's, car survived. Which is Toyota's. Toyota's a it's a Toyota. Toyota. I'm going to plug Toyota right now. A Toyota, now, it's a Mitsubishi tank. I'm telling you. It's a Mitsubishi tank. Ukrainians are really hard to kill. Both can be true. But I Toyotas think are great. Ukrainians are hard to kill. The power of, I know a lot of people, like, like to especially now, they give slack or criticisms to globalization where... Um, we see sometimes some of the negativities of the impacts of a much more globalized world. Um, but what I see um, was benefiting in this instance with Ukraine that we did not really see, or we did see, let's say, in Syria when Russia started to invade, there's a difference in reactions where in Ukraine, because if you're looking at it in the notions of, well, this is part of our European continent, this is... NATO's backyard. This is a culmination of a centuries of contestation between Russia and the Russian Empire, etc., with Western Europe. The sheer power of technology, not technology in the military sense, but technology in the civilian sense, where you have regular folk taking pictures, taking videos, even since December, of showing the world Russia's getting ready. They're sending MLRSs to the front. They're sending Toshka missiles. They're arming Kaliningrad. Uh, they're sending amphibious assault ships 
into the Black Sea. They're repositioning themselves here, 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 and here. We, you can only imagine if we were 100, if this happened 100 years ago, would the shock have been the same? Would the amount of exposure be the same? Would we have been prepared in the same way? No, we would not have. So the, the, the ability of social media to essentially turn this war around against the Russians to help the Ukrainians, not just financially speaking, but also hearts and minds wise, has really turned the tables from Russia's quote unquote superiority in its comparison to Ukrainian military um, to now this being a Ukrainian attrition where you know if, if, if it wasn't for this exposure we have really known the depths of what's going on no and because we would not have known we would not have really legitimately cared as much right but that's very true you know Ukrainian ex exposure has allowed them to win on the moral level of war very important Aubrey what you got just that I agree with Smaj and you don't need to exactly work in a super secret facility or have access to super secret documents to understand exactly what's going on. And uh, especially with this war, it's so very much publicized now. I can easily go onto different apps and look at different news reports around the region and see what's happening. I can go on TikTok and look and see that the war is being broadcast there with my very own eyes. I can see uh, Russians when they particularly uh, are active in their destabilization activities around Ukraine, uh, you can tell based on these videos, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it is some sort of staged act or if it's not on occasion. Yeah. And this war is very much publicized now to a degree where the entire world is connected to it. Yeah. And it, it affects our, everyone, everyone. Yeah. yeah. Ryan, what do you got? Well, I actually got some news as of 24 minutes ago. So the EU, the US are planning to do another round of sanctions against Russia. But these ones are actually very interesting. They stated that they will be taking a, a few Russian banks off to sw off SWIFT. Yeah. And that yeah. is honestly something big. They're removing um, their central bank. Really? It's the central bank? Mm -hmm. And that and that will affect their ability to Literally. conduct monetary policy. They're looking to remove the, the bank, Russian the banks, Central Bank. Because the banks and their ability to extend credit, mm -hmm. that's the, the lifeblood of modern war. The Russians don't have that. They can't do it. They can't go to war. It's, it's, another, it's another problem for their sustainment. It all comes back to sustainment. It always does. You just like that word. Because, <laughs> because it does. It comes back. Even Sun Tzu, with all his brilliance, yeah, he that's said, true. We, cannot, we, we, we should win without fighting, because if we fight... We're going to have to plunder the countryside right. to get what we want. Or it's because you're the logistics guy. <laughs> and yeah. I'm the logistics guy. But Dan Clay has something loaded up. He's been waiting with a zen-like patience. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, so while we're on the topic of uh, mutiny among the Russian soldiers, or I guess we moved on a little bit, but going back to that for just a moment, um, this has been said before. We'll say it again. This is a battle which is being significantly fought. Um, in digital spaces, as uh, Aubrey mentioned, this is a battle. You know, I see, I see, and I hear from many people who are saying, "God, I just, I wish I could do something. I wish I could help out." I've got some great news for you. You actually can, um, and this is a pretty good opportunity, I think, to plug the fact that the uh, George Kennan Roundtable. We are on Twitter now. If you are looking to find out ways to contribute, if you are looking to get trained in OSINT, if you are looking to become part of communities that are gathering 
and sharing information and getting it to people who might be able to help, reach out to us on our Twitter. We are a small grassroots group and we are more than happy to provide evidence, to provide training resources, and even to provide straight up tools that you can use for open source intelligence collection to uh, help get in on a fight. Um, building off of that though as well, the uh, Russians have not reported this time that they have taken any casualties, according to their official Ministry of Defense. We're <laughs> <laughs> uh, literally looking at videos so, of trash Russian tanks. Oh, yeah. Russian so, Russians. so the, the the word about that is, unfortunately, 198 Ukrainians have been killed. This is very tragic. Obviously, uh, 1,115 Ukrainians have been wounded, including 33 children. On the Russian side. 3,500 Russian soldiers have been killed, with cool. close to 500 pieces of hardware destroyed. So, first of all, ratio. Oh, man. Oh, they're they're, they're, yeah. they're going to need a lot more mobile crematoriums for that one. Sustainment. Yeah, <laughs> if I could just add on the digital front, kind of looking at this on a much more broader scale, this being the, one of the more, honestly, modern conflicts that we've ever had, it's, it's interesting to look at it from the TikTok, social media and even tender side of things, because there's a open source group that is um, that has actually created fake tender accounts of Ukrainian girls to get the Russian troops, who have gone about two months on Russian base with no women, to come and meet them. And they're using that to geotag Russian locations in the country. And so you're seeing a usefulness and a scariness of what modern apps and modern just technological information is really like just kind of coming down with stuff. But kind of going back to the point of the possible mutiny, it makes sense because Zelensky in his speech to the Russian people prior to the invasion, one thing that's very strong in Eastern European cultures is the relationship to the mother, to the family. Like your son and that's your mom. It's, it's a tighter knit relationship than most Jewish mothers have with their sons. So it's, he specifically said, he said, mothers of Russia, do you want your sons to come back and body that? And a lot of those women don't because their sons are 18, 19, 20. Mm -hmm. They're these conscripts that are getting thrown wave after wave mm -hmm. just to die. And they don't want that. It's already a diminishing population. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd imagine all of us, our moms would all want to say, no, you, I don't want you to go off to war. And there it's more so. It's a much stronger relationship. And that's one thing that really needs to be taken into account with that possible mutiny as well. I was interested because real quick, um, just a side note when you're talking about using um, like dating apps or like various other apps. Israel did the same thing um, to, I think it was either Hezbollah or Hamas, were literally, no, I'm sorry, reverse that. Hezbollah and Hamas were utilizing dating apps and hookup apps to lure um, IDF soldiers um, to geolocate them and then provide them um, their terrorist, I guess, soldiers, if that's what you want to call them, um, the locations of the Israeli IDF. So that's interesting that we're seeing that here in um, Ukraine, uh, how, again, average citizens, um, even people on the other side of the world are doing their part to help uh, Ukrainians. It's absolutely astonishing. But I think that also shows you a little aspect of the modern, the modern operations and conducts of war and the highly information um, digital and globalized space where we're no longer talking about a isolated war. We're talking about, well, a war that's happening in a particular geographic space, but any civilian 
or any person around the world can get involved by the click of a, of a button on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter if they feel that the cause is morally just. Um, Bill, just I really wanted to add on that know, before we move to someone else. Um, specifically talking about that Tinder thing, that's not just something that Ukrainians can do. Anyone in the world, male, female, non-binary, whatever you want, you can get involved. If you have uh, Tinder Prime, you can actually change your location to the Donbass region. You can put up whatever pictures you want, and you can start chatting with those lovely, friendly Russian soldiers and finding out about their hopes, dreams, and approximate locations and coordinates. Probably schlong sizes, too. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Ryan, Ryan Jones has something. When I started this podcast, I did not think we would be talking about catfishing a bunch of Russian soldiers, but hey. We think outside the box. That it's we part do. of the... That we, do. we think outside the box because they're thinking inside the box. Right. <laughs> we have to... It's a war strategy. It's a matter of war strategy. You have to surround them. You have to... Go ahead, my friend. Yeah, I mean, there's so there's so many implications of this. I mean, obviously, right off the bat, just just the sheer. I mean, we've had like what two, three breaking news updates in however long we've been on this podcast. Yeah. This this conflict is moving so fast, and we're getting information so quickly. It's it's absolutely fascinating. More importantly, like all of these ways of new electronic. I mean, and even social engineering. I mean, catfishing people to find coordinates. That's huge. The, you know, people on t- the way I was tracking the buildup was part primarily through like Google Earth and TikTok. Who would have thought those two things would mm-hmm. be the most capable military intelligence tool ever? I mean, we could see exactly what they're moving, where they are, and how they're doing it, and all the way on the other side of the world instantaneously. With this kind yeah, of stuff. and that's one thing I could add is is that so Ukraine actually had the fourth largest IT sector in the world. Prior to the war, a lot of people don't know that. They were just behind China and India and the United States, obviously. But what we're seeing now, and this is why I call it the first real modern war, is because you're seeing stuff like this being used in a warlike scenario. You Mm -hmm. know, most of us don't think that, you know, our so, I mean, obviously we do, and the listeners of this podcast probably do just because of the field that we're in. But most people don't think about that when they think about the geotags and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. And so you're seeing. Uh, a, a new way to conduct information warfare and OSINT really through things. But Ukraine also just recently, I think as of today or yesterday, one of their ministers started a uh, cyber defense force for the country and anybody in the world is allowed to join. They don't, and that kind of goes back to Dan's point about this being not just in a regional space, but also in cyberspace. And so that kind of it's a very new aspect that I feel like a lot of people are going to really have to get on to. Aubrey, you got anything? I have nothing. No acquisition? Anything? Anything happening there? The only thing is that, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of weapons that the Ukrainians are using uh, on the battlefield. Uh, for example, there's been an update. Uh, that they've gotten their in-laws from the UK. It's a heat-seeking uh, shoulder-fired missile launcher. Uh, so those have been very, very useful in destroying a lot of Russian tanks. Uh, there's also been reports about them using Turkish drones that they bought yeah. in Turkey a couple months ago, right before this whole thing happened. And then there's, of course, the infamous American javelins that are being used to crush the tiny, tiny... Oh, uh, yes, St. Javelin. <laughs> so, so on top of, you know, being able... The world having a microscope on... This, on this war, it's very much internationalized, considering mm-hmm. the weapons being used and the, the defense systems also being provided by the entirety of the world. 
What do you got, Brian Jones? Yeah, and we're definitely going to see a much more, an even more larger application as Russian troops start being essentially baited further inland. I mean, yeah. we're unfortunately, we're going to see a very bloody episode now that they've been beaten off of Kiev. Mm -hmm. They were beaten back. I, I unfortunately see a replay of Grozny happening where they encircle the city and just try to pound it to death with yeah. their artillery. However, if they still got troops in the countryside armed with missiles... That means they're, I mean, they basically remodeled, in the aftermath of Crimea, they remodeled their entire military of these battalion tactical mm -hmm. groups, which is basically a giant artillery unit with a few additional, you know, armored units mm -hmm. to accompany it. If they can find ways to hit those supply trains and those actual launchers, mm -hmm. that would be catastrophic for the Russian war effort. And that's something that I could definitely see coming up, particularly with these new t this new technology. Yeah, and one thing that is funny about this is we talked about this in the previous podcast, how the further inland the Russian forces go, the more resistance they're probably going to yeah. grab. We've already seen in the past few days that they have already received massive amount of resistance just from East Ukraine, a region that we thought would be more supportive of Russian troops coming in. So the further they are brought into, the, into Ukrainian territory, it's very hard to imagine like what... Yeah is awaiting those those Russian soldiers because we've already seen videos of people being of people arming themselves of AKs, thousands at the recruitment station, people building Molotov cocktails in their backyards. And it's crazy to imagine what is going to happen, even if they just go a few hundred miles inland. Mm -hmm. um, building off of uh, what Brian just said there, yes, I mean, I, one of the things that the Russians have specifically spoken about um, in private telegram channels that have been associated with the Wagner Group and uh, the like, is how surprised they are to find that the Russian, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian civilians have all taken up arms. They were expecting a pretty quick surrender and a pretty quick fall of Kyiv, mm -hmm. and now they're facing a Ukrainian with an automatic rifle behind every blade of grass. Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> as, as well, they also, you know, we've just seen videos, and I was passing one around a few minutes ago, featuring a, uh, a Russian BTR that was retreating from Kyiv from probably within the last couple of hours, as it was being absolutely showered in civilian-made Molotov cocktails, which, you know, love to see it. Um, but about an hour ago, allegedly, there was another air raid that was supposed to start in Kyiv, probably one of the heaviest bombardments that they were expecting yet. And I think that we should anticipate that the Russians are going to keep pushing on Kyiv in an attempt to decapitate the government um, while slowly advancing their other forces. But if they start to see this more as an occupation war rather than as a quick decapitation of the government, giving them the opportunity to pull out and leave a substitute, um, I think that they are probably going to seriously start reconsidering whether this is worth their time, energy, and uh, Vladimir Putin killing himself in a bunker. <laughs> so I can second that you know Vladimir Putin killing himself in a bunker would probably be a joyful thing. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> no, so kind of going off of all that is, yes, there are probably air raids on Kiev, and yes, there are a lot of defenders there, but... They have two things going for them. One, that's an ancient city that has survived a lot worse and a lot more. Mm -hmm. It survived Mongol hordes, Nazi hordes, and Soviet hordes. So it's it's you know it's it's got its place there. Second major advantage to that city is its is its metro system. It has one of the deepest metro systems in the world, probably because the Soviets built it to survive nuclear blasts. So it's got a very strong metro system, which could be used in a very much of a underground type of Polish underground style warfare, but. One thing that it should be mentioned, too, is the fact that Russian troops have been seen uh, amassing in Brest and Belarus, mm -hmm. and that implies that they're trying to cut off Ukraine's major logistic point for, uh, with NATO, with Poland, by cutting down through Brest and Kulovsk and all that. 
problem with that is, is as it's, I'm sure it's been mentioned multiple times in this podcast before, that is the heart of Ukrainian insurgency, and I wish any Russian the best of luck if they, honest to God, think they're going to do anything over there. And it's a fifth campaign. They already got four going on. It's just another front open. We'll just have to see. But Belarus is now officially, as far as I understand, uh, willing to help. But that then brings up issues in Belarus. True. Very true. Well, you know, everyone's really focused on Ukraine, uh, and it's an incredibly important and volatile region in the world right now. Uh, but the world's a big place, and Brian Rivas and Brian Jones have some hot takes it's on the conflict simmering between Colombia and Venezuela. <laughs> And, you know, I also want to mention how Ven- Russia is supporting Venezuela in this endeavor. So, you know, Brian Jones, you've done quite a bit of work on this in the Global Threat Brief, as you've mentioned. Um, do you want to take it away and just give a Wikipedia summary of the conflict between Colombia and Venezuela? Yeah, of course. Um, I was assigned, for the past few months, I've been assigned to Southern Command and your command. So I've been covering Ukraine and places like Venezuela, Colombia, things like that. And right now, which... I find very interesting, given the lack of coverage, there's uh, being flare-ups of violence in Colombia. Colombia got off of, civ- of a major civil war several several years ago. Uh, we're seeing upticks in violence, upwards of 23 dead, and a car bomb, or at least, or uh, even possibly several, happened in a border province in Colombia that borders uh, Venezuela. And right now, there's a three-way conflict going on there. You have Venezuelan-backed far-left militias, such as the ELN. You have drug cartels in the far-right militias, also working together. And then the third party is the Colombian government forces, which is currently supported by the United States. Now, as many of you know, Venezuelans are also getting uh, material support from the Russians. So, they, and they even before, back in January, they pledged to send material aid to Venezuela without elaborating what that meant at all. However, that could have implications as well. Yeah, and you know, on, on the 17th of February, Venezuela and Russia, they signed a statement to deepen energy cooperation, quote-unquote. And, and this was signed in conjunction with defense talks at, at a high-level intergovernmental commission. Um, and in my eyes, it indicates that, that Russia kind of views Venezuela as an important diplomatic, uh, military, and financial ally against the United States. And Venezuela, of course, is one of the few countries that supported Russia when it went into Ukraine. And uh, uh, Brian Rebus, do you have anything you'd like to add in about that? Oh, I got a, I got a lot of things I can say about Venezuela. Sorry, we have a small problem with no, the mic. No, you're okay, my friend. Keep talking. I just want to make sure it's working. You're good. So, with uh, excluding uh, my craziness on Russia, uh, I have family that lives in Latin America, so we I get a lot of news from people over there, as well as... It's my inter- It's one of my interests. So, with what's interesting with this with this scenario is obviously Venezuela has been getting really close with the Russians ever since Hugo Chavez when he came into power in the two thousand in two thousand. And with that, he's been there's been many instances where Russia has shown support. There's been there's been there's been troops sent in there, not mostly engineering troops, but still troops nonetheless. Warships have been sent there before in the past. And a lot of the current Venezuelan military's equipment right now is Russian. You can see AK, AKMs, AK-74Ms, the main Russian battle rifle currently in the in Venezuelan service, and that is that is interesting, especially because Venezuela, for since Hugo Chavez has had many contacts with 
Colombian leftist groups such as FARC, ELN, etc. And it wouldn't be that surprising if they are supporting some supporting some of the rebels in this region. Yeah, and, and the arms deals between Venezuela and Russia, they're important to Russia too. It's not those arms deals are not an inconsequential part of, of Russia's revenue, you know, to conduct all these different operations. I mean, have you, do you, Aubrey, do you have any, any insight into foreign military sales between Venezuela and Russia you could offer? Uh, not particularly, only because I haven't observed the uh, phenomenon yet completely about standing foreign military sales between the two countries. Uh, I know, though, that back during the crisis uh, with Venezuela, uh, that was when Trump was still president, obviously, that the Russians were sending over engineering technical support, which uh, I think along with uh, PMCs as well, PMC members. Mm -hmm. So th that's pretty indicative of the relationship that they have with the Venezuelans, that there's some sort of security cooperation uh, happening between the two countries. Yeah, and while Venezuela gets a lot of military and technical support from Russia, the United States gives Colombia quite a bit of support as well. I mean, the 19th of January, you know, Southcom, they sent about 20 armored security vehicles to Colombian Defense Forces to battle these, these different non-state actors and, I assume, patrol the Colombian border, which is still a kind of a sieve for Venezuelan refugees freed from that um, economic crisis. But, Brian Reeves, you want to speak on something? There is there's one thing I'm very more interested in this, and there... There's something I'm interested in with this, especially when it comes to if there's a possibility of Russia helping with some of this stuff because of their close relationship with Venezuela. Especially because with Russia, they are known to be they, they are known to be active in other areas of Latin America. For example, the drug trade. There has been there's been no conf there's been a few um, rumors that Russian SVR other intelligencers have been helping the drug trade, especially within I think it was 2018 in Argentina. A school associated with the Russian embassy found, was found to have a bunch of pounds of cocaine hiding in hiding in one of the school storage storage areas. It's a hell of a drug. <laughs> and that and when the Russians when there were questions by the Argentine authorities as to how that got there, they they did not answer those questions at all. And as well, there's been there's been rumors with that with the drug trade going on in the trilateral area south in between Brazil, Paraguay, and Argentina. And for those who don't know, Venezuela right now is considered a narco state. They are actually allowing a lot of drug, drug traffickers to operate from their ports legally because that is one of the few ways that Venezuela is able to get hard-earned capital for their economy and for their leadership. And I would not be surprised if Russia is fully helping to facilitate some of that as well as using using that trade to line up some of their own pockets. And that is help. That can help to affect the United States as well. So, Maj, you got anything on it? I don't know much about the, um, the depths of Venezuelan-Russian um, security cooperation, uh, at least as of recently. I understand, I understand the geostrategic importance of why you would want Venezuela um, not just in proximity to the United States, um, as well as an entryway essentially to the Caribbean, um, but also, I mean, the Venezuelan natural resources, um, as well as what Brian brought up, the it essentially effectively being a narco state um, as another source of revenue, 
uh, for the Russian government or even private security contracting. We do know with Maduro, uh, there's a lot of Russian as well as Iranian uh, private security, paramilitaries, etc., that are part of Maduro's um, security detail, um, as well as within the Venezuelan armed forces apparatus. Um, it's a serious problem where it does provide Russia um, essentially direct access to the other side of the Panama Canal. Um, it allows them, especially with their relation to Cuba, it gives them two, I guess, um, logistical points <laughs> in the Americas, which it does. Um, and it provides them with open opportunity on the side of the Atlantic to, to send, um, even in some cases covertly, uh, security personnel, just in case if need be something were to occur between Russia and the United States. Um, it's a huge problem, the relationship between Putin and Maduro. Um, a lot of their governance style is very, very similar. Um, I think that Venezuela does still pose a, a national security threat to the United States. Um, not in the sense of militarily speaking, but just its openness and willingness to cooperate with nations such as Russia and Iran um, for them to essentially expand their influences in Central and South America. And one thing kind of traveling back around to how this all started, one thing that I'd be also interested in is just thinking of if Russia is helping to use, is helping to kind of persuade or pressure the Venezuelan government to help the insurgencies going on in the Araca province in Colombia. Which is where all this stuff is really happening. The exactly, and because what this can do is, if this conflict gets bigger than what it is, so far it's small, but if it gets bigger and bigger, eventually the U.S. will have to be involved, and that will take them out of other areas, such as what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, which would be very interesting. Yeah, the United States does not want to unstable Colombia. We had that in the 90s and 80s. We don't mm -hmm. want that to happen again. And so we'll just have to see how this unfolds. Yeah, just kind of, you know, as we're zooming out and out here on a much more global scale, focusing in on Russia on the global scale, we can really start to see that Russia seems to have more, more pokers in the fire than, you know, people really totally realize. And one thing that we're starting to see is obviously Russia is completely ostracized from the West due to the issue in Ukraine. But even as some of the guys around here have shown, is Russia's now starting to not be ostracized, but very, very kind of pushed away from the Chinese government, and how the Chinese are kind of saying, kind of really lukewarm on this whole Ukraine thing, because China knows economics is kind of their, you know, main thing, and everything else is their Achilles heel. Mm -hmm. So they understand that, oh, crap, well, Russia's not getting this done as quick as they probably told them they would, mm -hmm. and this is dragging on a lot longer, and so... You're seeing Russia really on a global scale, outside of obviously Venezuela, Cuba, some of the more dictatorial regimes, really just kind of start to be ostracized completely from society. Mm -hmm. No, that, that makes sense. Uh, today, um, it was announced that China was essentially um, beginning to distance themselves uh, from Russia, essentially due to the, the blowback that Putin is uh, receiving. Which, I mean, we kind of understood that was going to be the case that China was observing Russian operations and uh, retaliations to Russia with regards to Ukraine because of their ambitions for Taiwan. Um, if, let's say, the global backlash was minimal, then I could potentially see China have increased their aggressions 
um, to towards Taiwan, uh, with the, when the whole invasion started, Taiwan had to scramble some jets. Um, that was a highly indicative that well, perhaps Xi Jinping was eyeing um, the success rate, the the long term trajectory of what was going on in Ukraine, in order to determine well, is seizing Taiwan um, viable this year or in in the distant future, uh, or in the near future, but. They had released a statement from the Minister of Foreign Affairs who stated that the safety of ordinary people's lives and properties should be effectively safeguarded. And in particular, large-scale human humanitarian crises have to be prevented. Um, this came after Xi uh, Jinping made his first remarks, urging Vladimir Putin in a phone call to solve the issue through talks with the Ukrainians. Um, Putin later... I guess, uh, told she that he's ready to authorize talks with Ukraine on a possible neutral status for the country, but it's unclear when or if uh, they will take place. Um, so it's kind of, it's interesting that last month, two months ago, they declared that their friendship had no limits to it. It was a military, economic, industrial, energy, etc. strategic partnership. But now that the moment that China sees that, okay, well, technically Russia is a liability for the reorientation of the global uh, world order. Um, this goes into what we talked about in the second podcast. Well, we're going back to a multipolar order. Part of that is determining and defining your, your set sphere of influence. And if clearly this, you know, this shows, at least the Chinese or the Americans, that Russia is not in a capacity to really carve out and establish a true sphere of influence. China sees this. And China knows this, but what I'm also going to push forward with this, uh, we can talk about this at a different time, is that now that China sees essentially a weakness in Russia, what could that effectively mean for Central Asia? What could that effectively mean for the Asia Pacific? If China now sees that Russia is economically isolated from the SWIFT account, if China sees that Russia has lost over 3,000 soldiers in a matter of, what, three days? There's a precedent there. There's a precedent there where China, understanding their, their mental framework, Russia is a large liability, but now they are easily exploitable. So China could then provide, oh, you've been blocked out of the SWIFT account? Well, here are Chinese credit. Here's Chinese loans. Here's Chinese assistance, X, Y, and Z. So now I can make you... Russia, who owns 50, 53% of the Arctic Ocean, now dependent on me. Now China's like, okay, well, we're going to back off. We're going to abstain from the UN vote, but we're going to back off a little bit, and we're going to continue to monitor the situation. But now that you need, you're in dire need of credit, a credit line, you're in dire need of sustainability, you're in dire need of stability, now I'm going to bring you in. And we've been saying this for years that China will make Russia dependent on Beijing. And I think now we're going to see that process start. Yeah, and I do want to talk about that, but not before Aubrey has his say. So, uh, <clears throat> this is a really interesting topic uh, because we're looking at the after effects of, of the initial invasion on Russia's foreign policy in these different areas of the world. And one of the reports that I came across today was the, the fact that Syria is now starting a... a prime, prime Russian ally has to start cutting its spending back on wheat exports, uh, wheat imports, sorry, uh, oil exports with the Russians. And uh, this is just very telling about 
the situation that Russia is going to be getting itself into in the future can sustain these relationships with this invasion happening. And that's the main question that I think world and Russia's allies should be asking yeah. themselves right now. Is this, is this really worth my friendship, my relationship with Russia? I further see Syria potentially, however this may go, pivoting more towards Iran. Ooh, um, yeah. If Russia continues to publicly fail in Ukraine, I can see Iran, hell, I could even see Turkey, make some sort of maneuver on Syria. If Russia is too preoccupied and they have to redivert a lot of their forces or resources that are in Syria to Europe, that allows another another power in that particular region, Turkey or Iran, to seek further encroachments or even influences um, in Syria that could potentially also fuel tensions with Russia. There, there's already tensions between Iran and Russia when it comes to Azerbaijan. There are already uh, tensions between Russia and Turkey when it comes to Armenia and Azerbaijan. So for this, it's like, okay, well, yeah, the focus is there on Ukraine. But I personally see Syria, Iran, and Turkey now being a further complication to the situation for Russia if they continue to demonstrate further weaknesses in their capabilities to mean what they say. And you, yeah, you mentioned Turkey on our last podcast, Imagine. I wouldn't mind talking about that Turkey, ne- next They're podcast. not Turkey anymore. They're Turkey. Yeah, so they <laughs> the point is, you know, I want to talk about that region in, in the next podcast, but after Aubrey, you know, you know, has, has the last word on this, I want to switch over to Brian Jones and have him kind of talk about, well, what are the different strategies of the United States and and U.S. allies in the in the PACOM region? But I'll, I'll let Aubrey get the last word here. I'm just going to add on to what Samaj was saying that uh, Russia's military operation in Syria was was all for for show, and now with this this invasion that just has not gone as planned as Vladimir Putin has planned, it just it just says a lot. You know, it says a lot that. It can't sustain itself in this, in this, in in a large scale uh, invasion such as Ukraine, Syria. It was much more like control. They had the higher playing field. They had the airplanes bombing uh, different groups of jihadist terrorists, and they had the backing of a prime ally, which is the Assad regime. But here, the paradigm, the dynamic is just completely off for them. They're they're pretty much just launched this mm-hmm. by themselves and with the help of Belarus, of course, but not with like Iran or Syria or not mm-hmm. with the help of all of them. And they're starting to see this as a all or nothing gamble for them at this point. You know something when the Taliban is calling for peace, I'm like, I'm just yeah. like, the Taliban and the Pope are both like, look, right. you guys are idiots. The Pope like, you really screwed up here. How I mean, did the Pope and the Taliban agree together? Oh, the same thing. thing. You'd be surprised what the Vatican and the Taliban agree. No offense to the Vatican, but there are certain things they do agree on. And this and this war and this war is one of them. Are you trying to insinuate something by any chance? No, 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 no. I'm just saying the war in Ukraine is interesting. It's interesting to see who is agreeing that this is a bad thing. I can see why the Taliban. Will call for that because of nostalgia reasons of Afghanistan, 
Or to just try to get legitimacy. That too. They want legitimacy. <laughs> yes, they do. They absolutely do want legitimacy. But they've been in this situation before. Since 79. So it's like, okay, yeah, we're low-key terrorists and we're killing some people. But the the experiences that they have received from history, they've seen this before. They've seen it before and they know where it can go. And you always talked about partisanship. You mm-hmm. know, the willing to fight in Ukraine. The same thing occurred with the Taliban for 40 plus years. So I thought that was funny. Like, you, out of all people, calling for peace, but understanding history is like, okay, I'm not get, I am not giving them legitimacy, but for them to come out on something that there are some similarities in the situation, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the Taliban are just happy that Western eyes are off them for right. <laughs> <laughs> but but I actually want to shift, you know, the George Kennedy's focus back to the Indo-PACOM region because I mean, again. Russia, it's, it's showing moves within China, as well as been accepted by the Biden administration as one of the preeminent threats uh, to security in that region, to keeping the international trade lines open. Would you and, mind explain the Indo-PACOM region for those who are not part of the military? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. So the Indo-PACOM region includes basically the wor- area of the world between India and roughly, you know, French Polynesia, you know, right mm-hmm. right outside of the Galapagos Islands, right to the to the west of that. All those Galapagos. <laughs> and, and, for, and from the north all the way from Vladivostok down to um, Tasmania, roughly. So that briefly, that roughly sketches it out. But Brian Jones, what do you got? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the, this region, it has some of the most preeminent economic powers on the planet. It has South Korea, it has Japan, it has Australia, New Zealand, and Obviously, as everyone knows, China. I mean, we've seen a lot of them in the headlines for good reason. Largest economy, largest largest army by numbers, rapidly modernizing, largest navy by numbers. It's a mass it's an incredibly important thing to understand and an incredibly important topic to watch. And of course, you know, with this whole Ukraine situation, the obvious parallel is Taiwan. You know, it's been in the headlines for for several times in recent months with, you know, Chinese flyovers and major threats because the threats are similar and the objectives are similar between with like Russian. I I know there are several key differences, which I definitely want to discuss. You have two you have two autocratic powers who have made major promises to essentially bring back their old glory that happened before essentially the West showed up in their eyes. So they are looking for these kinds of major power plays, and neither countries are technically tied to a mutual defense alliance, so they're vulnerable targets. Yeah, and and so what we did at the George Kennan Group here for this podcast, we looked at the the Indo-PACOM strategies of three different um, Pacific powers. We looked at Australia's. We looked at the United States. You know, uh, the Biden administration, they released the Indo-PACOM strategy, I think, in 12th of February here. So we're going to be looking at that. And then Brian Rivas will be talking about um, Japan's white paper, which mm-hmm. I believe came out in December of 2021, correct? Japan's defense white paper did? Oh, yeah. So the Japan white paper, um, it's, a, it's basically a defensive paper for the objectives for Japan, specifically for defense, especially for its JSDF, its J- Japanese Self-Defense Forces. And one of the most interesting things that came out of it was how they specifically talked about Taiwan being very important towards the Japanese defensive strategy, 
especially towards China. And that is something that hasn't been talked about in Japanese in the Japanese white paper. And I'm pretty sure it's only it's about as old it's since twenty twenty twelve, I believe. I'm not too sure. And it's been interesting too because Japan for the past few years since the since uh, the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe came in came into power, Japan has been putting a lot more emphasis on defense and has been putting a lot more emphasis on trying to strengthen it, the self-defense forces, which has come with uh, mixed opinions in Japan over its past history and as well as become with a little bit of worry from its neighbors, such as... I'm sure Korea's nervous. Yeah. Oh, uh, they've, they've been nervous the entire time. And China's even more nervous. On, actually, they're scared in some factors. But it's been interesting because Japan's starting to make a semi-shift towards thinking about its area of operation where its territories are and especially with the territorial disputes between China and Sen- between China with involving the Senkaku Islands and China's been doing a lot more uh, not China Japan has been doing a lot more to boof- to boost up its defense system it's been trying to create systems for anti-ballistic missile capabilities against North Korean missiles it's been creating new classes of warships it's trying it, right now. It recently, it's right now the second um, largest holder of F thirty five fighters, a stealth fighter variant that can be used both on land and on aircraft carriers. And recently, two new helicopter carriers have been turned to aircraft carriers. And there's some, and there's some logistical and technical problems that need to be worked out with that. But yes, some variants of the Marine F thirty five fighter can do vertical landings and takeoffs. And so that's what uh, Rebus is, is referencing. But yeah, and it's interesting too, because what many people don't realize, sure, people, some people may not consider the JSDF to be a military, but it's considered the fifth most powerful armed forces in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And that's saying something for a country that says they don't want to be involved in any war whatsoever. And... If it's beefing up its forces, that is is a worry for the countries that it conquered during World War II. We've seen some of those fears, again, in South Korea. And China has definitely been very vocal about it. Like, when they first made their Izumo-class helicopter carriers, which are now aircraft carriers, they were, they were very livid, for, better, for lack of a better term. And they're still very livid with how the operation is going. And the other question is... How far is Japan willing to go in its military reorganization, and how could it be used specifically in the region to either counter China as well as even to help U.S. policy in the region? I guess this brings forward a really big question is, are we going to see a shift in, and this is to the whole group in general, are we going to see a shift in Chinese policy from trying to push for almost like a broad-chested military thing saying, oh, we have a bigger military, especially in regards to Taiwan, to a much more intelligence, economic, a multilateral view of things, especially since the war in Ukraine started. Because you're seeing now more and more countries are more than willing to have those economic issues. And while China by no means is a paper tiger, they do have their own weak points that could be easily ex- exploited on an economic side. No, I agree. Um, like how I just saw, I think it was a few moments ago, um, Ukraine tweeted Elon Musk and then Elon Musk gave Ukraine, um, access to Starlink. Did he really? Yeah, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Can you, can you explain what Starlink is for everybody who doesn't know? I'm not tech savvy, but basically it was like his satellite, um, it was a low orbit satellites. 
um, which technically is supposed to provide much more greater connectivity. And because that it's in private hands, it can essentially um, get over government censorships in particular countries. So that's one reason why China and North Korea hates it, because they can't essentially censor or block um, a Starlink link, no pun intended, because if it's a it's a low orbit. It's not with the main satellites in mid or high orbit. Um, they're much lighter. They're much smaller. Um, that way, faster Wi-Fi connectivity, um, further increasing in interconnectivity around the world. More people will have access to Wi-Fi internet. Um, so Ukraine added him, and he gave Ukraine access to Starlink. So I, I, I honestly just I see Aubrey smile. Aubrey's like, face. He's literally just shining right now over all of this. I just, Go ahead, Aubrey. I just think it's 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 funny as hell. These 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 autocrats are so rich and they think they're so smart. And then we have Elon Musk, <laughs> a just a billionaire who has he's Bruce these, Wayne. Honestly, these satellites and he just he just gives them to the Ukrainians. And, and we have. Fucking North Korea and, yeah. and and Vladimir Putin over here using these. They, they just wouldn't think of that, you know. They, they wouldn't think of like going to their own citizen, their own citizens, or enriching their own citizens for to try to win this, to try to win this this war or or this struggle. It, it just boggles my mind. They're they're supposed to be so rich and powerful, and everyone's got a weakness. Yeah, everyone's got a weakness. Starlink is one. That's the interesting yep. thing is like with every we, kind of the Ukrainian situation has proved, shown us that everyone believed, as we said earlier, that Russia was going to take over Ukraine within a few days. But we and I'm not going to lie, I think part of that was also that boogeyman mentality of Russia has many capabilities and they will probably and based on the paper, they could probably do this very quickly. But we forget that. We forget that every country has its own weaknesses. The U.S. has a weakness. China has weaknesses. Iran has weaknesses. Every country has its own weaknesses. And that stops them from doing some of the designs that mm -hmm. they want to do. And that is one thing I think we definitely need to pay attention to in the future conflicts to understand what, how a conflict could go in the future. I mean, I think that all you really needed to do to figure out what Russia's biggest weakness in Ukraine is watch Red Dawn 1984. It's giving a whole bunch of teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. No, he's not, not wrong. not, not expecting... Wrong. You know, uh, literally an AK behind every blade of, of uh, grass, and that's more or less what they're dealing with. They weren't yeah. expecting a whole bunch of teenagers to... Uh, like anonymous. <laughs> yeah, they weren't, they weren't <laughs> expecting yeah. the internet to turn against them. They weren't expecting the uh, Belarusian president in exile to declare herself the new leader of Belarus, which uh, happened today. Yeah, you which know, makes me think, do you think the Belarusians will have a revolution then? Because right now their troops might be sent into Ukraine to fight. Well, they've already been sent in. Uh, I mean, more, more so now. Yeah. Well, it depends on what they're doing. If they're just doing support stuff, which I suspect they're doing, they, I don't think there'd be that much impetus to revolt. But I, you guys love talking about Russia. I'm going to try and steer it back to Indo-Paycom because Jones has something. Oh, okay. There was a few things that I was covering right there. And, I mean, obviously, I guess it applies to both Russia and China of this, essentially the paper tiger and the, the boogeyman mentality. Both of these guys have gone consider undergone quote considerable modernization efforts, and they had a they had a literal army of bots trump up their capabilities. Oh look at this! We can shoot however this right pin right onto a pinhead, 
and, 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 you know, our tanks are invincible or whatever. And just a lot of these conflicts, I mean, Russia actually has fought in a conflict. China has not yet. Mm-hmm. It laid their, their thing, it laid their entire propaganda bare. Mm-hmm. I definitely think a lot of that, particularly in recent days, I mean, I saw countless social media posts about preaching Russian, the Russian capabilities. And I think it was a, a, a political attempt to try to scare the Ukrainians into submission. Mm-hmm. And when they called them on their bluff, I mean, the, we, we see the results, you know, tanks with their turrets blown completely off. Yeah. It's been a problem since the Gulf War. And the Chinese, frankly, have the same problem. They're relying on a lot of Soviet-era designs, mm-hmm. just with essentially a different layer of paint and maybe some updated electronics. It's kind of fascinating to me. It's interesting to think about that, especially because uh, going back to the Indo-Pakcom region and talking about China is... Obviously, we talked about this earlier. Um, China is definitely watching this conflict and how yeah. it unfolds. And the question is, based on what we're seeing now, could this conflict, like me and actually me and Robert were talking about this just before the podcast, and I we were wondering, could this conflict affect any policy of China towards Taiwan if they decide to be less aggressive or if they decide to be more aggressive? Especially because, as we're seeing, Ukraine right now is generally a pretty modern force fighting Russia, which is also considered a very modern force. And I'm pretty sure, honestly, Taiwan probably has better technology than what the Ukrainians have. And so my so a good question, and I think I want to ask this to everyone, honestly, is do you think this war could actually affect if China wants to still go after Taiwan or if they will in the coming in the next couple of years if someone predicted it or not? Well, I actually want to take this one. There's massive differences between China's relationship with Taiwan and then Ukrainians' relationship with Russia. One, Ukraine, as you mentioned, is about the size of Texas. Yeah. You know, it's a massive area to police and control. Taiwan is much smaller. It's more. If you take, say, Taipei and a couple other cities in the north of the island, you basically have control over the whole island. It's, it's much it's easier. Island. It's an island. It's exactly, and that's the, and the other issue is Ukraine. I was surprised how comfortable they were issuing out all those weapons to their citizens. Taiwan is more not. Than Taiwan is not that comfortable. The only people that they feel comfortable issuing out weapons to are oddly enough their indigenous population, and even then, only. Single shot muskets, roughly. And see, that's the difference on a cultural aspect that mm-hmm. always, that sometimes does get overlooked, but it is definitely there. Is culturally, the Ukrainians have always fought for their own resistance and freedom, regardless of whatever they did. They've always done that themselves. Asiatic cultures, in that sense, are much more communally based. Mm-hmm. And because of that, if you're not within the inner circle of the communal base, you're not going to have the same, I guess, uh, what's the term, like, same advantages as the um, other groups mm-hmm. that are in there. Well, hold on, Robbie. I, I, I have to disagree with that a little bit, only because, um, you know, Taiwan is not that far away from China, and there is a very big real threat of there being uh, Han Chinese nestled within you know, the Taiwan population. Oh, yes. I, I, I think that that's just one thing that we have to consider, and that's what might be something that the Taiwanese government should consider as well, just handing out a whole bunch of guns to all these people who are on this island. Uh, and it might be possible for them to uh, organize and overthrow the government if that ever came into uh, fruition. Yeah, yeah, and then that's the issue. Right. Yeah, well, that's one thing that you have to look at, too, is... 
the Russia-Ukraine conflict is two different ethnicities. The China-Taiwan conflict are different, but what you mentioned right there is a really good point about the inner Han, is maybe you will see a shift from China wanting to come in straight up with a naval insult to we have the sources and people inside Taiwan to try to take it out from within and not yeah. have to worry about the economic and political repercussions that have been seen in Russia. No, that makes sense. Yes, uh, definitely. There's there's a lot of differences in Taiwan, and but they they cut both ways. Obviously, mm-hmm. I mean the terrain in Taiwan is much more restrictive than Ukraine. I mean Ukraine has a lot of the flat flat lands that that I mean the Russian tanks are literally designed to move across Russian Russian Ukrainian plains. Um, so their armor should technically have an advantage there. Taiwan is dense urban cityscapes. And mountains, two of the worst possible places to send armored vehicles. Mm-hmm. Which, and it's a very, very, particularly given how effective, just from a sheer tactical and strategic perspective, that the defense has in a modern war. I think it completely, and regardless of the circumstances, even if a professional Taiwanese force is still standing, not to mention I definitely think we'd send support and military support from the other Asia, uh, Asian partners and ourselves too, that we probably get deployed there. That would that would com- cause a considerable amount more casualties than any previous prediction could have ever modeled. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about next podcast. I want to kind of start after we go through the uh, updated Russian maneuvers in Ukraine. I want to talk about how United States' strategy is is evolving to combat China. I want to talk about Australia's as well. Mm-hmm. And Libya, hopefully, eventually, but we have unfortunately run out of time. Samaj is punching the air, saying, get off the air. So I'll let him have the last word. I, I don't want the last word. Oh, yes, you do. No, I don't. I'm looking at you, yes. Yeah, I know you do. Well, I mean, we've had a very, uh, very informative discussion today um, over the course of some lively libations. Um, to liven up the mood, and Brian is staring at me. And I don't well, know we why finally got to not talk about Russia for once. Right, <laughs> right. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to really start balancing the Russia and non-Russia components as, you know, this is supposed to be podcast and geopolitics, not just Russia. Um, although I'm understanding that Russia is the main focus now, um, there will come a point in time where that may not be the case. So we just want to make sure that we're always staying on top of our OSINT research, OSINT discussions, and kind of brainstorming and bringing things together to bring a better picture of modern day, not just warfare, but modern day understandings, interpretations of uh, geopolitics. Um, this is a platform for young and up and coming practitioners. So this was, this was a pretty fun podcast episode, and I'm looking forward to the next one. Uh, until next time, peace. And much love.